I want to remind you this morning that, that Jesus loves you, and God is always doing good for you. And um, I know from my own experiences that in the midst of really hard things, that truth can seem distant or far away. Um, but uh, here's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Um, we, we, we usually quote and, and remember John 3.16, which speaks of God's love, but um, there's a really important verse, and you guys are probably aware of it, but I want to tie it together that follows immediately after in verse 17. So listen this morning as you're reminded of God's love for you and, the, and that he has a, a good plan, a, a, a good future, and a hope for you. He said for, John writes, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, this world, to condemn us, but in order he sent his Son into the world that in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. So um, as we look at Luke chapter 9, um, I want to point out we're starting off in the middle of the chapter this morning. Uh, we studied through the first 36 verses, and when we began this chapter, I pointed out that um, in regards to the timeline or the, the chronology of Jesus' ministry, uh, we reached the point where he is um, set out on his final journey through the region of Galilee before going to Jerusalem where he would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And we've we kind of been going through those accounts in the last two weeks leading up uh, to Resurrection Sunday. And um, so now, chronologically speaking, even though we looked at those things through Palm Sunday and uh, the resurrection message last week, we're going to go back to our gospel in Luke and look at the time in between, the time where Jesus finished his ministry in the region of Galilee and what took place, the things that he taught, the things that he did, and, 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 and how he was intentional to, to do specific things that were in fulfillment of Scripture and fulfillment of prophecy. So we're going to break that down. We're going to be in this timeline of the, uh, this point in, in the timeline of events for, for several weeks as Luke takes a lot of time to detail the, the accounts that took place during um, the time he's leaving Galilee into the time he reaches Jerusalem. So we know that from Matthew chapter 9, though, that as Jesus went through the region of Galilee for this last time, that he acknowledged before his disciples, or to his disciples, he's speaking to them, and he, he mentions, he says, he says in there that the, that the, the people, the, the crowds of people, they're like sheep without a shepherd, scattered sheep without a shepherd. And it's a very graphic illustration of the state of the nation, and, and, and specifically in regards to the spiritual leadership. We know at the time that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that they were placing these heavy burdens upon the people, that they, that, that they were um, not being good shepherds to, to the people of the nation of Israel, and um, they were lost. They were hurting. They were not being protected. And, and that was the time in which Jesus had come to be the good shepherd, right? And, and so in order to reach as many people as Jesus saw the state of the nation and was communicating this now to his disciples, in order to reach as many people as possible, Jesus commissioned the 12 apostles for the very first time. He's going to give them another commission along with the disciples after he raises again from the grave, right? There on, on the Mount Olives as he ascends into heaven, he, he tells them to go forth and to make disciples of all nations. But here is the, like, the very first commission that we read about in regards to the disciples, specifically the 12 being sent out. And when Jesus commissioned them after telling them, look, the people are like scattered sheep. They need shepherds. They need people who are going to speak truth into their life, that are going to lead them into the safe places, that are going to watch over them. He, in, in, in commissioning them with that statement, he, he gave them, we're told, power over demons, authority to cure diseases, and more importantly, he sent them out to preach the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And by sending the 12 apostles out, Jesus was um, making provision um, for the people. He was providing for the needs of these people who he saw who were lost and who were suffering, those who did not have a shepherd. But he was also, through this experience, through these events, he was also preparing his disciples for a time when he would be gone. Jesus knew, he was communicating to them that when they reach Jerusalem, these things are going to happen. And, and he, he's telling them, I'm not always going to be with you. 
And so Jesus was preparing them for a time when, when he would be gone, when they would be left to continue the work that he had begun. And the awesome thing about it is, is even though Jesus was going away, and it's comforting for us again this morning to know that when Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, he says that he sent the helper, right? The Holy Spirit to be in us, to be with us, to guide us, to comfort us, to encourage us, the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And we know on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, when, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room, Jesus told them, wait here. And, and I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you an orphan. And he, he empowered them with the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and then, then from there, they, would, they went out again. But Jesus gives them power and he gives them authority now uh, to continue the work that he had begun. And, and what we see through all of this accounts is what we're going to be looking at again this morning as we continue on through the rest of the chapter is we see that the apostles, through these events, they, they had much to learn still. They had a lot to learn um, uh, to be prepared for the day and the time when Jesus would, would be um, uh, no longer with them. And they had a lot to learn even though, think about this, and this is comforting as well, I think for me, maybe for you, because I'm a little slow to get things at times. And the disciples, they had been with Jesus for three years listening to his teaching, having private time with him, asking questions that no one else would ask, and yet Jesus would patiently uh, um, um, explain to them spiritual truths. And, and, and not only that, they had his example. Could you imagine being able to walk with Jesus for three years on this earth? Not only to hear him teach, but to see how he did things. It was an amazing time for them, but yet they still, they still had much to learn. And like I mentioned when we began this chapter, there are five specific lessons that are recorded by Luke um, that Jesus was teaching his disciples. And we looked at the first two in the first part of this chapter. And so for review, the first lesson that Jesus had taught them was on being a servant. Really, really was about being, it, it had a lot, there's a lot of aspects of that, that lesson on being a servant. But at the core of it, it was this, this issue of, um, it was this message of sacrifice, being sacrificial. And, and a servant must be sacrificial. And Lesson came when, when the apostles had advised Jesus to send the multitudes back to the cities from this deserted place that they had followed Jesus into because it was getting late and they would need some food to eat. And, and we know that the disciples were tired, they were weary, they were looking for some um, um, time of rest and refreshing to be with Jesus alone, and, and yet Jesus was continuing to minister to the disciples or to the, to the crowds that were following, thousands and thousands of them. And if you remember, when, when, when they came to Jesus and, and gave this advice, this misplaced advice, Jesus responded to them and said, he said, don't send them away. He says, you give them something to eat. And by all, by all estimates, the crowd was probably somewhere around 10,000. We consider men, women, and children. In fact, um, uh, he, he gave them this message even though they did not have the resources to feed them. And um, they could, what, <laughs> we know that they could, they didn't have anything themselves, by the way. They had to go searching through the crowds, and they, in another account says they found a, a, a young boy with a, with a paper bag full of bread and, and, and fish, two, five loaves and two fishes. And yet when they took that, the little that they had, and they gave to Jesus, the lesson that Jesus taught them is that whatever you have, no matter how little it is, it's enough. And, and, and when, the reason why the, 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 the message of being a sacrificial servant is the foundation for that lesson is because sacrifice isn't in always when it comes to being a servant. It's, it's, it's sometimes the easiest thing to sacrifice is our own personal resources. The hardest thing to sacrifice is ourself, our emotions, our time, our energy, our love, our compassion. Uh, these things that make us who we are, to give of ourself is a very difficult thing. And that's what Jesus was calling them to do. That's what Christ came to do. He calls us to give of ourselves to one another, to the world, not just of the things that we have. And um, in in even the little bit that we have, we go, God, I'm here today, but I only have this much to give. It's not enough. God says, put it in my hands, and it's more than enough. 
give me you. And we're told, we're told that we're to offer up ourselves, right, as a living sacrifice. Beseech you, therefore, Burns, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable, which is our reasonable service, Paul writes. And in that, even when we go, God, there's no more to give, there's just nothing here, God says, it's enough in my hands. And God will work in us, and God will work through us. And it's an awesome lesson to learn. Now, the second lesson, which directly followed this event, was about knowing Jesus. And this lesson started when Jesus' disciples, um, who, uh, when Jesus had asked his disciples after the crowds had left, the next day they're fed, they're on their way. Jesus is now having this one-on-one time with his disciples, and he's all, hey, tell me. He says, tell me, tell me what the crowds of people are saying about me in regards to who I am. Remember? And, and the disciples responded accurately with what the people had saying because there's multiple accounts of this. It says that the people believed that he was John the Baptist, maybe perhaps Elijah, or one of the other prophets of old who had risen up from the grave. And Jesus took this as an opportunity then to ask his disciples a second question. He was personalizing. He was working with them and in them. And so he asked this second question, and he asked them, he said, who do you believe that I am? And of course, Peter, he replied, and he said, the Christ of God. We know that Peter was right, but he was right partially. He, he was partially right, for Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one of God, the Messiah. But, but Jesus went on. He knew that his disciples were limited in their understanding at this time, and he wanted to point out that, that he is also the Son of Man, is what he said. And, and that had great connections to Old Testament prophecy, that, that phrase, the Son of Man. And, and, in, in, and when you study that out and you look at that, you can go back to the Old Testament. As Jesus referred to that, we know that the Messiah, who is also the Son of Man, as Jesus said, would be one who would come and suffer many things. In light of this, Jesus told his disciples that he would be rejected, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised up on the third day. And what we know is that this news disturbed the disciples. So much so in another account that Peter, after proclaiming this great truth about Christ, and and God said, Peter, you know, good job. God's revealed this to you. And, And then in the next breath, Peter says, after Jesus tells him that I'm also the Son of Man, I'm going to be, Peter says, not so. That ain't going to happen. And, and, and Jesus, of course, if you remember the words, he says, get behind me, Satan, in that moment. Because it is God's will. It is God's plan. And, and, and so Jesus, wanting them to have full understanding, he began to open up their understanding by teaching them this. Because sometimes we don't understand this in our own hearts, in our own minds. But Christ is this awesome example for us. And, and Peter stood up because he didn't realize this about the Messiah at the time or this truth, this truth that Jesus wanted to teach them, that suffering wasn't a bad thing. In fact, what Jesus was teaching them in him being the Christ and the Son of Man is that suffering leads to glory. The suffering leads to glory. And, and, and as he began to open up their understanding, what Jesus did is we're told that just days later, in teaching this, he took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain, right? And on that mountain is where the transfiguration took place, where Jesus' appearance was altered, where his glory was revealed as he had a conversation about what was to happen in Jerusalem, the suffering that he would go on. And, and, and we know that at that time, his glory was revealed, but more importantly, the voice of God was heard by these men saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so the 12 needed to learn, guys, about being a willing and sacrificial servant. They needed to know that, that Jesus is the son of God who was sent to save them and through his death, through his death and resurrection. And with those first lessons, in light of this understanding that that God had, that Jesus had brought them to up to this point, there were these three additional lessons for Jesus to teach. Three additional lessons for his disciples to learn. Three additional lessons for us to learn this morning. And so if you're taking notes, these are the ones that we're going to look at this morning as we close out the chapter. They needed to learn to trust. 
And they need to learn to, to trust in and rely upon Jesus. And we might think that's still an issue of dependency, and it is, but it's a deeper level of dependency. You know, as a servant, we're told that we need to be dependent as a sacrificial servant in laying our lives into the hands of the Savior and the hands of God to work in us and through us. But there's this day-to-day life that we go through, and there's this issue of trust and, and trusting in and, and relying on Jesus. That's the next lesson. Then, then in addition to that, they needed to learn to love. And you would think they should have had this one figured out by now. And, and I look at myself, you know, been a Christian for a long time. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know, I say this about, God's probably not saying this about me, so I don't want to speak undoctrinally, but I say this about myself. I should have that figured out by now, this lesson of love. And, and, and I don't, but it's, it's good reminders for us this morning, and we could be taught more about it. And there's three aspects of love that we're going to look at in this lesson that Jesus was teaching. And then lastly, guys, and this is, even though it's the last lesson, is perhaps the foundation for every lesson that we learn as Christians. And it's this lesson to always put Jesus first. Always put Jesus first. So as we... As we begin to, to read through this, I want to pray first, and then we'll read in verse 37 in this morning. Let's pray also for our brothers and sisters at the First United Methodist Church and Pastor Eric. We bow your heads? And Father, thank you for this time together. I thank you for each person here. Lord, I pray you bless our time this morning as we study your word. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit that is in us and with us would teach us. God, um, we need you to reveal spiritual truth to us in these lessons about the kingdom of God and the citizens of the kingdom of God and, and what you call us to and who you've created us to be, Lord, um, we need to hear from you. So do that work again this morning. May your word go out and not return void. May our hearts be soft and our minds be open. May we have the ears to hear and a heart to receive. We pray the same thing for our brothers and sisters at the First United Methodist Church as Pastor Eric teaches the, and shepherds the people there. We pray, God, that he would teach your word in truth. We pray that the Holy Spirit would fill him, empower him. And we pray that our brothers and sisters there would be encouraged and strengthened by the message that you have for them. Lord, this world is growing darker, and we're grateful that there are other believers beyond the walls of Calvary, Living Stone, that um, love you here in this community. And Lord, may we find them and stand shoulder to shoulder as you unite us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 37, okay? Chapter 9, verse 37, it says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Okay, so they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John. And so it was the next day they came down, and there was this multitude there waiting to meet them. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and, and he, he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implore your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. We'll stop there. All right, this this next lesson, and, and we'll get to it as we go through it, but it's, it's ultimately in its foundation about trusting in and relying upon Jesus. That's what, we're, that's what we're reading here. Trusting in, reading about, it's trusting in and relying on Jesus. And according to verse 37, like I already mentioned, this event happened on the next day, and the, the chronology of, of what's going on here is significant. We need to remember where Jesus was at, who he was with, who he had left behind to get the big picture. 
And so it was on the next day after the transfiguration on the mountain, and when Jesus had come back down, we know with Peter, James, and John, they, according to verse 37, were met by this great multitude of people. And, and according to uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, we're told, you can look there in Mark's gospel, I'm going to bring a couple of the other gospel accounts into it to give us this clearer picture, but this crowd, it says, the crowd had gathered because the other nine apostles, whom had been left behind with the people, they were arguing with the, the scribes and the, and the religious leaders. There was this argument going on that Jesus was, was entering into. And, um, and apparently this argument became, be, began because these other nine apostles, they're the ones that had tried to cast out this demon and they had failed, okay? They had failed. So more than likely, even though it doesn't tell us for sure, but more than likely the scribes who we know at this point who had a plan to kill Jesus, had um, opposed Jesus and his disciples, that they were now taking advantage of this, this um, the failure, the public failure of Jesus' disciples and, and they were taking advantage of it, and they were, they were probably trying to discredit, right, Jesus' disciples and, and um, by now publicly ridiculing them for their failure. They're having this argument. And so in Mark's account, we're told that when Jesus saw the scribes arguing with his apostles, he asked what it was they were discussing. What is it that you're arguing about? But... As Luke puts here, because there's no, no record of the disciples saying anything, because before the disciples could answer, Jesus, the Father, here in this account of the Son, who was demon-possessed, he spoke up and he cried out in verse 38, because he didn't care about the argument. He cared about his Son, right? He cried out in, in, in verse 38, and he asked Jesus to help him. He told Jesus about his Son and about what had happened to him in the instance, in the situation. And in verse 39, we see that the father explained how his, how his son was afflicted by this evil spirit, a demon, that was physically injuring his son and making him to go in these convulsions. And then in verse 40, he explained how he had brought his son to Jesus' disciples to cast out this evil spirit and, and how they were unable to do it. They were unable to cast it out. In light of this, we see that these nine apostles who had been left behind while Jesus was, was up on the mountain, what we see at the very least is they were in a position where they were now in trouble, right? They were in trouble because, not only because of the, the, the argument they were in, but they were in trouble because they were powerless to cast out this evil spirit. Yet, remember the context of what has just taken place. What we know is, as we're told from the beginning of this chapter, that, that, that this was something, the casting out of evil spirits, was something that they had been given the power and the authority to do. And had been successful. When they returned, they were like, you're not going to believe what happened, Jesus. Uh, and I love Jesus. He's like, he probably was all surprised, even though he knew, because he's God, right? You know? It's like when your kids come to you and they're little and you know and they got this awesome, exciting thing to tell you and you don't go, I already know that. You know, it's like, tell me about it. And, and I could just see that. You know, they're excited and they want to tell Jesus about the success they had and the power and authority that they give them and how they'd use that for the glory of God's kingdom. And, and, and yet, in spite of all their successes to cast out the evil spirit, um, when Jesus had probably sent them out, we see here that they, were, that they failed. They failed. So there was no good reason for why they should have, been able to, should, have, should have not been able to cast out the evil spirit. What, it, was, it was just a matter of days is all from when, when they were out doing it and conquering, right, the kingdom of Satan. So there's no good reason that we can see initially why they, they should have not been able to cast out the spirit at this time. But in light of their current failure... In light of this current failure, what we see is we see that the biggest problem they had was not the attack from the scribes, not the attack from the Pharisees, not the arguing, not the public ridicule. And we see that's not the biggest problem. We consider that, that they were in this problem because they had stopped trusting in and had stopped relying on Jesus for the work that they had been empowered to do. Now, when we look at the other Gospels, specifically Matthew and Mark, and study all three of the reports together in conjunction with Luke of this one single event, we see that something had changed and that they were now lacking something in their lives. 
In Matthew chapter 17, we're told that, this, that, the, that when, the, when this incident was over, when it was all done, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, why did we fail? What happened? And, 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 and in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said it was because of their unbelief. He said it was because of their little faith. And this is why Jesus, here in verse 41, referred to his disciples as part of this, this, this faithless and, and, and perverse generation. Those his own disciples have been following, he then took them because of their little faith, their lack of faith, because they had stopped believing in the power and authority they'd be given. He put them in the group of this perverse generation. And the bottom line is, is they, at some point, Somehow they had lost the confidence, and listen to what I'm saying here, they had lost the confidence to activate or energize their faith. And faith must be energized. Faith must be activated in order for it to be acted upon. And so they lost the confidence to activate or energize their faith, which was needed in order to use the power that they had been given. The power hadn't been taken away. The authority hadn't been taken away. But their faith, which was bridging the gap, is what rendered them impotent in this situation. So the question that we should ask as we seek to apply faith into our own lives is we seek to live by faith with the power and authority that God has given us. The question that we should ask is, what is it that had changed in this circumstance, in this situation? Because I think it's something that we can often relate to in our own lives. And the answer is found for us in Mark chapter 9. Because in Mark chapter 9, there's a record of this event also, and we're told that when Jesus had answered his disciples, when they had asked, why could we not cast out this demon, he said it was because this kind can only be driven out with prayer and fasting, right? With prayer and fasting. Now, now our focus doesn't need to be on, and sometimes people get in this spot where they look at this demon and they go, oh, it was a super demon. It was a super demon with superpowers, And our focus needs not to be on that. Our focus needs to be on the fact that Jesus said it took prayer and fasting to drive out this kind of demon. It needed to be prayer and fasting. In light of this, we should see that these nine disciples, what we can deduce from that is that they hadn't been what? Praying or fasting. (laughs) And you know what? These were things when you study, and I mentioned this earlier on as far as the disciples being with Jesus for three years and, and learning from him, the things that, they taught, that he taught them, but also in the things that he exampled to him because we know as we study the life of Jesus that prayer and fasting was something that Jesus did all the time. All the time. And he exampled that before his disciples. And so they, they fell short of this. And, and, and in short, their, their faith had become weak in this instance because they were not ultimately seeking or relying on God. Why, how do we know that? Because prayer and fasting are just the means. Prayer and fasting are spiritual vehicles by which we stay connected or seek and become reliant upon God. And so when we pray and when we fast, what we're ultimately saying is, God, I'm seeking you. I'm seeking to be connected to you, to be plugged into you. Prayer and fasting are are two vehicles by which we are then saying we're reliant and live in this place of reliance upon God. They're spiritual. They disconnect us from this temporal world and connect us into the eternal Consequently, as we look at the disciples, they, if we deduce this to be right and look at the Scriptures and all the accounts, what we can see is in their lack of prayer and in the lack of fasting, they were ultimately putting their trust and reliance in something or someone other than God. And we do the same. And it happens subtly. It didn't have to happen as a result of one event or two events or some tragic thing in the disciples' lives. They're just going about everyday life. Jesus is now on the mountain. They're down below. They're doing what they had been doing, but they began to do it differently. And it was an issue of reliance. It was an issue of trust. And in doing so, their reliance and their trust shifted off of God. Their eyes got off God. It got set on the temporal, and they were beginning to trust in themselves. At a time when they needed to trust and rely upon Jesus the most, when he was not physically with them. Right? And And because of this, they were acting in their own strength, and they failed. And And now, we don't know this, but the disciples, I believe, 
are so much like us in every way, in many ways. And it's possible, as I begin this, is that they begin to slack off in their devotion life and prayer and fasting because of the previous successes that they had just had. Think about it. In other words, they probably or possibly had taken for granted the power and authority that they had been given and and, and lost sight of where it came from. In doing so, they moved to this place of self-confidence and self-reliance and sought to confront and cast out the evil spirit with this kind of attitude, this, this, this kind of thought. I can do this because I've done it before, right? It's this, it's this, I can do this, I've done it before frame of mind. And, and, and what I know with that and what I see here perhaps with the disciples is that it's a recipe for failure. Where I've stayed connected to God and God's done an awesome work in me and through me. And you go a little bit and you go, okay, I got this. I'm good, God. See you on the other side. I can do this. And the truth is, is we can't. And when we Walk with that kind of frame of mind. I can do this. I've done that. We're sure to fail. We're sure to fall on our face. But fortunately, here's what we know and what we see here in this instance. And this is the best part of it for me is that Jesus is bigger than my failures. Jesus is bigger than our failures. Even in those times where we go, okay, I got it. I can do this. Because we've had some success through the empowering, through the connection that we've had with God, and we lose sight of that, and we go on our own way, and we fall, and and we fail, and yet Jesus is bigger than our failures. And in verse 42, we see that he, when the disciples were not able to, he was able to heal this child when the disciples could not. And the fact that Jesus healed this child shows us, once again, his compassion, but also reinforces the fact that Jesus can do what we cannot Jesus can do what we cannot, and therefore we need to trust in and rely on him alone for our power, for our empowerment, for our encouragement, for our hope. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, this sums it up for me. Listen, it's, it's a graphic illustration of what we're talking about here. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, and we, he's the vine, we're the branches. He says, those who remain in me and I in them will bear much fruit. Why, he says? He says, because without me you can do nothing. You know, the disciples, they were not connected to the vine in this sense. They've abandoned the prayer and fasting and there's this branch that are going out. Look at I'm the branch, I can do this. Well, a branch apart from the vine dies, it withers. There's no longer any life in it and it produces no fruit. He's the vine were the branches. But like I said, learning to trust and rely on Jesus was just one of the lessons in this chapter that they needed to learn. And as we read on, we see that they needed to also be taught love. Three aspects of it. They needed to be taught to love one another, taught to love others, and taught again to love their enemies. So in verse 46, we read here, and it says, this lesson uh, uh, in regards to love, he says, then a dispute, (laughs) okay, they're not on a good track right now. Then a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took the, a little child and, and set him by him and said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives him who sent me, uh, for he who is the least among you will be, will be great. Now, John answered and said, Master, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he is not against us and is on our side. Now, someone important to point out that the dispute about what was going on, about, about who was going to be this greatest, um, this dispute that the, the disciples were now having, it, it immediately followed the announcement back in verse 44, look where he told them that he was about to be betrayed. Don't forget that little section. I'm about to be betrayed, and then they begin to fight among themselves about who's going to be the greatest. The point is, is, is when you are betrayed, it's typically by someone who is what? Close to you. Someone you know. So instead of being humbled by this news, the 12 or the disciples, and checking their own heart to see if this could be true about to themselves, 
They, like most of us would do, they begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. In other words, as they, they were making their case, here's what they were doing. They were not just about fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were, making, they were making their case. They were making their case to each other about why they would be the greatest in order to cast out any doubts probably to those around them in, in saying that in no way would it be them who would be the one who would betray Jesus. Couldn't be me. Look what I've done. I'm going to be the greatest. And they all probably had their accounts and their reasons for this, and we're not told exactly why, how this, how this conversation went, but it would probably be similar to the type of arguments that we would have, meaning we probably would have argued, at least I know I would have in this situation, about how we are greater than someone else. I, I would begin to list my list of achievements, and look at how I'm so much greater than you in this and boast in my abilities, or boast in my past victories, and then begin to compare them to, to, the, to the other people's weaknesses and failures around me and go, it's got to be you. Certainly when Jesus said this, it's you, right? And I wonder if Peter and James and John brought up the fact that they were the ones that had been chosen with Jesus to be on the mountain when the others were down below and had just failed so miserably, right? Or maybe it was the other nine who were left below that concluded, hey, Peter, James, and John, that wasn't such a great thing that Jesus took you. Obviously, he couldn't trust you to be left alone like us. <laughs> now you a little bit how my mind thinks. And, and I imagine these were some of the things that they brought up to one another as they disputed among themselves. But, but whatever the argument is, because we're not told, but whatever it is, whatever arguments they were making as they were Bidding for this place of best, it's clear that they were disputing about who would be the greatest in order to assure, to assure the others that there was no way that they could be the one who would betray Jesus. That's, that part's clear. And so whatever the details of the dispute were, the fact of the matter is, is what we see in this is that they were only thinking about themselves, right? They were only thinking about themselves, which is an unloving thing. It's an unloving thing. These were their brothers. They had been with one another for three years. However, they had to learn to love one another if they were going to be Jesus' disciples and serve him effectively, especially after Jesus was gone. And to point out how unloving they were, being in their attempts to exalt themselves above one another, we see that Jesus took a child. He took a little child to illustrate the point that they would be great when they could demonstrate the humility and demonstrate humility and when they were willing to receive those who were considered to be the least, not those who were considered to be the greatest. And the children in that day were considered to be least. In other words, they would be great when they learned to love selflessly and when they learned to love sacrificially. In fact, this is the way that Jesus has loved us. And it is the way that we have been commanded to love one another here in our own church today. Remember Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, he said, I give you a, I give a, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. But they needed to learn more than just to love their fellow brothers. They needed to learn to love others. And this is evident by what we read then in verse 49. Is, is, is they just, I don't even understand the response here. And John answered and said, how does this even correlate, John? It's like he's like shifting, you know, let's change the subject, Jesus. Let me tell you about something good I did. And, and so, so John goes on, and, and in verse 49 he felt it necessary to tell Jesus how they had previously in this situation um, had prevented an obvious follower of Jesus who they did not know from casting out a, a, a demon in Jesus' name. And perhaps John was trying to impress Jesus with his zeal for protecting his name, but we see that Jesus was not impressed by this. John missed it. The disciples missed it. John was just speaking. It seems like they all did this together. But what John did is no different than, than some of the unloving things that are done today among Christians all over the world. Right? 
It's not, it's not much different than, than what we do as Christians today in one another and how we somehow in some way think we're better simply because we regularly worship in a particular church building or because we've aligned ourselves or even identified ourselves with, another, with a particular church name. Oh, we're of Livingstone Calvary Chapel. We're not of that other church, you know? And, 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 and we tend to look down at our nose, perhaps because somebody doesn't do it just the way that we do it in regards to, to following after God. The point, is, Jesus, the point is, which Jesus made in verse 50, is even though there are differences within the family of God, for those of us who confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we must remember, guys, that we're all on the same team. That's a loving thing. You know, years ago, I got tired of Facebook and seeing Christians post the things that they're against. I'm against this, and I'm against that. And I just began to talk to some of my friends that were doing that and going, you know, why don't you tell people what you're for rather than what you're against? This is what I'm for. It's a different mindset. It's just like, because if I'm for this, can you be for this? It's not what, it's, it's, it's an idea of you're telling everybody what you're against. It's a dividing line that, that perhaps God never wanted us to divide on anyway. And I'm not speaking in the ecumenical way. I'm, I'm against that ecumenicalism that we see talked about in an evil way in the end times, but I am about being united under Jesus Christ, and Christ says that's a loving thing. The point is in this is that even though there are differences in the family of God, right, that we're all on the same team if we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And, and um, this is the loving thing to do. We know it. We must support one another. We must encourage in one another in spite of our differences. And it's a loving thing to do. And as the children of God, as the citizens of God's kingdom, we must tear down these things. We must seek to tear down these things that separate us into our own different groups and build on Jesus who unites us all. Now, the truth is there are times when it's hard to love one another. It's hard to love other Christians who are different than us, right? I'm sure there's been times for some of you it's been hard to love me. And there's other believers in this town that it's just like, you're being a knucklehead, right? And, and, and it's hard to love other Christians who are different than us. You're so weird, <laughs> But, but, but it's even harder to love our enemies, guys. It is. And this was another aspect of the lesson on love that the disciples needed to learn. It's something that we must also learn to do today. Again, verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered in a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, Jesus, and when, his, when his disciples, James and Joss, John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elisha did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so then they went on to another village. See, the Samaritans, and a lot of you guys know this, but I just want to touch base on it. The Samaritans were two groups of people. Excuse me. The Samaritans and the Jews were two groups of people who had this, this grudge, if you will, against one another. And it had gone on for centuries, hundreds of years. And at the root of this dislike for each other, at the root of this dislike, the root of the dislike for each other rested in the fact that the Samaritans were a mixed race of Jewish people. They were not purebreds, so to speak. And, and, and this came as a result of Israel's captivity by the Assyrians first. And when the Assyrian army took over the northern kingdom of Israel, they removed the majority of the Hebrew people from the land and left only a small remnant of Hebrew people in the land. And, and they, 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 they brought in other people from other Gentile nations that they had conquered into the land of the, of, of, of the northern tribes of Israel that had been removed by the Assyrians. And, and they became one people group known as the Samaritans, a mixed race of Jew and Gentile, which they're still that today in Israel. And so because... These, these Samaritans were not pure-blooded Jews. They were rejected and despised by the Jewish people who eventually came back into the land after being released 
from their second captivity in Babylonia, when the southern kingdoms were eventually taken out of the land, also by the Babylonians. But when they were released at that time, the Samaritans, who truly in their hearts considered themselves to be a part of the Hebrew people, part of the nation of Israel, they wanted to help with the reconstruction of the temple, but they were not allowed to do so. They were forbid to, forbidden to do so. Consequently, the Samaritans were not happy about that. <laughs> and so what they did at that time is they built their own temple on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, just south of Nazareth, and it's one of the highest peaks on the West Bank. And even though the Samaritan temple was eventually destroyed in 130 B.C. by a Jewish king, Samaritans today still celebrate Passover, a Jewish feast, on this mountain and consider Mount Gerizim to be the true location that was chosen by God for the Holy Temple, not the, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. All of that to say is the point that the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies, and they'd been enemies for a long time. So when, when, when Jesus was not received by the Samaritans, James and John, the two brothers of Jesus, who had been given this nickname, the Sons of Thunder, they stepped in and asked Jesus if they would like for Jesus to have them call down fire <coughs> and to destroy these no-good Samaritans once and for all. Now, obviously, these two men who had been following Jesus since the very beginning, they were carried away by their emotions, right? We can, we can see that. And they were carried away not only by their emotions, but by, by their, this long-time rivalry between these two people. Think about that, what I just said. They were carried away by their emotions and carried away by a long-time rivalry, but yet what we see here, that was no excuse to be unloving. And I think we can use that in our own lives as excuses to be unloving when it's an emotional thing or when there's this rivalry going on or history with us. Remember, James and John had been with all the other disciples when Jesus had taught about the kingdom of God on the Mount of the Beatitudes, and given the Beatitudes, and spoke about the citizens of kingdom of God. And, and, and he heard Jesus say that citizens of the kingdom of God are to love their enemies, they're to do good for those who hate them, and to bless those who curse them, and to pray for those who, are spitefully, who would spitefully use them. But now when they had the opportunity to practice what they had been taught, we see that they also failed. And they did so because they'd been carried away by their flesh, not moved by the Spirit of God. And us too, it's the same way. This is why Jesus said in verse 55, he said what? You do not know what manner of spirit you are. He's saying that's not God's spirit, that's your spirit, that's your flesh, man. That has nothing to do with what God wants. And then Jesus reminded them in verse 56 that he had come to save men's lives and not to destroy them. And the point is that the disciples' lesson, disciples needed to learn to love their enemies and so must we. We must learn this lesson. And it's, you know how you learn it? You get opportunity. You get opportunity. And, and it's one thing to say that we love our enemies, right? I love my enemies. Until they're standing in front of me. You know, it's one thing to say I love my enemy, but it's a whole other thing to actually love someone who hates you. It's a whole other thing to do good to those who are spitefully using you or someone who is being hurtful to you. In fact, I believe the Bible teaches us that this is impossible for us to do apart from the Holy Spirit of God. It's impossible. I know in my life that's not in me, in Sean. But it is in God who is in me. And in order for us to love those who do not love us, we must put on Jesus and walk according to the Spirit and not according to our flesh. And according to Galatians chapter 5, this is how I also know this to be true. It says the fruit or the works of the flesh are evident. And they are, among other things, at the top of the list, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, murders, selfish ambitions, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And this love that God calls us to show to our enemies is correctly defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, which says this, love suffers long. It is kind. You want to know what it means to love your enemies? This is what it is. It's not the way that we, it's not what we think how, how we should love. It's how God says we should love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Ouch. Love doesn't even think evil. And sometimes we think, well, I, I didn't hit him. Well, I, I thought about it. <laughs> I really liked it, you know? Love does not rejoice in iniquity, 
but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's this awesome statement and why God calls us to love, because he says love never fails. Love never, never fails. We'll wrap it up with verse 57. It says, now as it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If the worship team wants to come up. Guys, putting, first, putting Jesus first and above every other thing is the last lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples in this chapter and it's exemplified by these three encounters. And all the other lessons, the lesson on serving, the lesson on knowing Jesus, the lesson on trusting in and relying on Jesus, and the lesson on, on, the lesson on loving everyone one another, others, and our enemies all stands upon this lesson that we must learn today, the lesson of putting Jesus first. And in these final verses, we see that three men call Jesus their Lord, right? Three times, Lord, Lord, Lord. But they would not do what Jesus asked them to do. The first man, when he heard of the possible hardships attached to putting Jesus first, he, we see here that he would not deny himself. See, it's, it's, it's an issue of self that stands in the way often of us putting Jesus first and saying, Lord, I'll do what you want, what you say. He would not deny himself. The second man was concerned about the wrong funeral. This is what I mean. He should have been concerned with dying to himself, putting to death his flesh. And taking up his cross to follow Jesus and obey God's will. And lastly, the third man had his eyes on the wrong direction. He had his eyes in the wrong direction. And he could not follow Jesus. Jesus had clearly said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Which direction are you going today? And all three of these men failed to meet the conditions that Jesus had put forth. And the point is, is, each one of these men, each one of these men, the emphasis was put on this, me first. Do you hear that? Do you see that? Me first, me first, me first. And not on putting Jesus first. Yet, guys, hear this. This is what God requires of us who choose to follow him. And through this, this is how we are enabled to fulfill the work that God's called us to do is first this before it can ever be anything like this. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you for calling us into relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put you first, that we would die to self, that we'd follow the right way, that we would deny ourselves, And Lord, that you would do that work in us. We can't do that, but we submit ourselves to you, Lord, knowing that you can. You can do all things we can do all things through you who strengthens us, and we can do nothing apart from you. So, Lord, let us seek that. Let us seek relationship with you once again today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.